Uh, we're going to turn to the final two chapters of Second Samuel tonight. Chapter 23 is kind of a look back, apparently, at some of, again, David's earlier years, uh, sometime during the Philistine wars or battles that they had to fight. And it gives us a list of many men who were serving him, and they're known in the Bible as David's mighty men. And the author takes a bit of time here to uh, list about 36 or 37 uh, total of these men who were in support of David during his reign. Now, if you turned to First Corinthians, or not Corinthians, First Chronicles, rather, uh, you would find another list that's a little bit more extensive. I think there's 47 or so men listed there. The reason, perhaps, is because those lists were not the same lists written at the same time, but they were just accumulations of uh, the, that information uh, either during er, the early reign of David or perhaps the latter part of his reign. There's a lot of other little discrepancies between the records in First Chronicles and what we have here in Second Samuel, but there is nothing that cannot be resolved uh, if you look at the text closely and do a proper analysis there is no discrepancy, and there are a lot of people who would argue that there is, and it is those who would argue these things that are likely to be opposed to anything from the Bible as being truth. So, um, we're here in chapter 23, and actually we're going to begin with verse 8 of this chapter, because we read the first seven verses the last time we were together. <clears throat> but again... Uh, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, it tells us in verse 8. The first one is Josheb Bashabeth the Tachmanite. He's chief among the captains. And he was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now the phrase Adino the Esnite isn't really his name. It's actually a phrase that means swing the battle axe, or he who swings the battle axe, perhaps, is what is implied here. But it's not translated that way in most of our texts. It's looking as though this man's name is also Adino, and that he was an Esnite. But it tells us in the same verse that he was a Tachmanite. But his name was Josheb Bashabeth, and uh, he knew how to swing a battle axe. There's no doubt about it. He killed 800 men at one battle. That's quite a task. Verse 9 says, And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ehohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. So in that particular battle, David and these three men, uh, among whom was this man named Dodo, stood alone in defense of the people of Israel and fought against the Philistines and won a great battle, a great slaughter took place there. It tells us that in verse 10, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. So here's this man who's Eleazar, the son of a man named Dodo, and by the way, that word dodo is not correctly translated um, from the original Hebrew. It should have been dodi. Uh, and it has to be because of the fact that 
in the Hebrew language, the only way that you can know the vowel sound is by the punctuation that they provided at a later time than when it was originally written. And the punctuation that is provided in most Hebrew manuscripts implies what we know as the letter I, and it's pronounced an E sound in Hebrew. So it's Dodi in verse 9 here. Now in verse 24, when we get to that, there's another man whose name is Dodo, and that man's name is spelled correctly and translated correctly in all of our translations. So this Dodi is the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was one of David's mighty men. And it tells us again that he fought in this battle for so long and so hard that his hand was wrapped around the sword, and when the battle was over, he couldn't loose his hand from the sword. That is amazing to me, and that tells me that he was fighting fiercely. And I don't know if any of you, especially men, who have had to swing a hammer all day long, and you let that hammer go at the end of the day, and you almost can't open your hand. And that was apparently what was happening with Eleazar as well during this battle. But a great plunder took place as a result. The spoils were taken by the people of Israel after the battle had been won by David and those three men. Verse 11 says, And after Eleazar was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. Notice that's the second time in a battle against the Philistines that the Israeli army took off and now leaving this man apparently by himself to fight. That's kind of sad, but God used it. And by the way, uh, each one of these victorious statements that are written about these men are miraculous statements in and of themselves. This man, Shammah, stood alone in the field of lentils, and he stationed himself, it says in verse 12, in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam, and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in a stronghold, in the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now remember, David has been king now for a period of time in Hebron. And apparently this is before the time that he actually gets to be king over all of Israel and in Jerusalem, the new capital. So he's fighting against the Philistines, and the Philistines are occupying a territory in and around Bethlehem. Bethlehem is David's hometown. And he's in the caves of Adullam, from where he also fled when Saul was chasing after him. But here, he's coming against the Philistines, and there's a garrison in Bethlehem, and David's looking down from the caves of Adullam, longing to have some of the water from the gates of Bethlehem where he once lived. He knows the water is fresh. He's very familiar with that particular well at this gate of Bethlehem. And for him, it was one of the most wonderful, refreshing water supplies he had ever drunk from. And so he's voicing his thoughts 
about how good that water is and, oh, how I would love to have a drink of that water now. Well, the men heard him. And it says in verse 17, or rather 16, so the three mighty men, and again, they're not named, but he identifies them as three of David's mighty men. The three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. And these things were done by the three mighty men. Now at first sight, this act of David by pouring out the water, probably in our eyes, might have seemed to be such a waste and such an insult to those three mighty men who risked their lives to get the water for David. But what David is saying is, this water is for the Lord. And it is a show of his appreciation for those mighty men who got the water, that he offers it up to the Lord on their behalf as well as on his. And so it is something of a great testimony of David's true heart with respect to his men and with respect to his God. Now it tells us in verse 18, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Jeruiah, was chief of another three. So there was the first three, and then there was a second three who were not quite as mighty in, in terms of their accomplishments as the first three, but they're set apart from the rest of the group of mighty men as a second three men. And it's interesting, he's only going to mention by name two of them. And maybe we'll get to a, perhaps an understanding of why that might be the case. But it says now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief among another three, and he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Now you remember, Abishai was quite the warrior. And every time that Abishai wanted to do something for David, like take care of Shimei that was throwing rocks and cursing David by cutting off his head. Well, David refused to let him. But he was indeed, although a rash individual and impulsive perhaps, he was a man who was very, very well known for his prowess as a warrior. And he killed these 300 men and won a name among those second three. Was not he, it says in verse 19, the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaniah, or Benaiah rather, was a son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two warriors of Moab. Now, there are some translations that differ from that. The New King James, actually, I didn't translate the word as the King, New King James or King James does, or the New American Standard, I choose to use warriors because that's the closest to the original Hebrew as I looked at it um, in my lexicon. But the New King James says lion-like heroes, and in the New American Standard it says sons of Ariel. Neither are correct. But they are from Moab, and they are at least warriors of Moab. He killed those two warriors of Moab, and he also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And that is a correct translation for the word lion. 
killed the lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Now, there are some who would argue that it doesn't snow in Israel. Well, that's not what the Bible tells us. But take note of the fact that he apparently jumped into the pit where the lion was caught and killed the lion on a snowy day. Could have been a very slippery and dangerous thing for him to do. But for whatever reason, was the lion uh, bothering anybody before it was caught? Uh, was it a, a lion that actually wasn't caught but was able to get in and out of that pit without difficulty? We're not told. But it's a pretty brave thing to step into a pit on a snowy day with a lion. And that's the kind of man that Benaiah was. It tells us also he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man, a mighty man, a valiant warrior of the Egyptians. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Now remember, that was the special guard that David had surrounding him, the secret service or the special forces that David uh, had close to him to protect him, his own personal guard. And Benaiah was captain over them. We saw that in an earlier passage as well. Now again, it only mentioned two of those second three. And I'd like to perhaps suggest, and it's only a suggestion, who the third one might have been. And you'll find that in the list that remains in this entire chapter, and there are 30 names that will be run off here, and none of them includes the man Joab. Now, Joab was indeed a mighty man of David, a mighty warrior. He was recognized by David as the general of all of David's army. And yet he's not included in this list as one of the 37 men that are noted here in this book as the mighty men of Israel. Likely, the reason must have been, perhaps, because of Joab's actions with regard to Absalom and uh, perhaps other incidences as well when David had tried to get Joab out of that position. Joab continued to find a way to get back into that position as the leader of David's army, but he's not included here in this list. Kind of like when you look at the lists of the names of the tribes of Israel, you'll find there are several lists of the various tribes, and there are 12 tribes, although there are actually 13 because Levi is a tribe, but Levi didn't get any inheritance in the land, so the majority of the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel do not include Levi. However, in the book of Revelation, there's a list of 12 tribes in Israel, and Levi is included, but Dan is not. And so there's a lot of speculation as to why Dan might be excluded. And the majority of expositors consider that Dan was excluded because of Dan's inactivity at a time when he was needed most by the other tribes. And there are other incidences where Dan stands out as perhaps not as good a person as the other tribes' leaders. Whether or not that's true, 
We're not certain. We can only speculate about those. But I did want to point out that Joab isn't here, and that may be similar to the reason why Dan isn't listed in the book of Revelation as well. Moving forward from verse 24 to the end of the chapter, we have a list of the 30 men who are considered mighty men. And I suppose, although I'm not really excited about it, I'll read through the list as well as I can. And we'll get through this list rather quickly. So here we go. Verse 24. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. And that is truly Dodo, not Dodi. Shammah, the Herodite. Elika, the Herodite. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikkesh, the Tekoite. Abiezer, the Anathothite. Mabunai, the Hushathite. Zelman the Ahohite, Maharai the Netophathite, Heleb the son of Beana, the Netophathite, Ittai the son of Ribai from Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, Beniah a Pyrathonite, Hidai from the brooks of Gaash, and Abi Albion the Arbathite, Asmaveth the Bahumite, Eliabah, the Shialbonite, the sons of, the, of Jashen, Jonathan, Shammah, the Harahite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphalet, the son of Abishbai, the son of Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite, Hezrai, the Carmelite, Pearai the Arbite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Beana the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Naharai the Berothite, fight, height, right, armor bearer of Joab the son of Jeroiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Whew! I need a drink of water, but I don't have any with me, so I'm going to have to just. Forget about that for now. Listen, all those names are important names from the Spirit of God's perspective. That's why they're there. They may not mean anything to us. We may not be able to pronounce them. As I'm sure you discovered, I am not able to, and I doubt that any of you could have done much better. But the point is, there are some names in this list that I do want to look at for just a bit. The first one is in verse 34... Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, or Gilonite. Now, Ahithophel, remember him? He was David's counselor. He was angry with David and chose to take sides against David with Absalom when Absalom rebelled against David and took the throne temporarily in Jerusalem. The reason this particular individual is important is because we're told in First Chronicles that Eliam is the father of Bathsheba. And Bathsheba then is Eliam's daughter and Ahithophel's granddaughter. She is a woman, obviously you know, that David committed adultery with and whose husband David had murdered. This is likely the reason, and we've mentioned this before, but I want to reiterate it, Ahimelel or Ahithophel, rather, despised David. And it's likely because of the fact that he took Bathsheba 
and married her and killed her husband, Uriah. Well, the next one I want you to look at is in verse 39. It mentions that Uriah, the Hittite, was one of the mighty men of David. Uriah, the Hittite, is the Uriah that David had killed under Joab's command in the battle against the Philistines because he was married to Bathsheba and he had impregnated Bathsheba and lost all opportunity to keep the, the, the sin of David and Bathsheba under the rug. And because he could not hide that fact, he had Uriah killed so that he could marry Bathsheba and then not suffer the guilt. But boy, did he ever suffer the guilt in spite of his acts. But this man was one of his mighty men. That makes it, I'm thinking, even far worse than it really might have been if he didn't even know who Uriah was, but he did. He knew Uriah was a great warrior, and he let him be murdered in a heartless way so that he could cover his sin. How shameful, David. How cruel. How sinful. How evil. We can put all kinds of names on this aspect of David's life. But you do remember that God punished David for his sins, but he did not take David's life. The reason? Only one. Grace. That's the only explanation. And a little bit of mercy too. But David suffered the consequences. Don't you ever forget that. We've seen so much of the consequences in the studies of these various chapters in Second Samuel since that terrible event where David did indeed suffer the consequences of his sin. It doesn't make the sin any less sinful. But it reminds us that within the grace of God, God's judgment, his hand of chastening is always there. So let us never take lightly the sins that we commit because we know the chastening hand of God is the same as it was then, today. Well, that's the list of David's mighty men as it's given to us in Second Samuel. And now into the last chapter of the book of Second Samuel, we find a final story of another event in David's life near the end of his reign, and it's not a very good thing that David does. In fact, it's considered to be a sinful thing that David is going to be here uh, doing in these last verses of chapter 24. However, we also know that God can use those things that we do that are not right and bring glory to his name through them. And this is precisely what we'll be looking at in the remainder of our time together here tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 24 says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. I want to stop here for a moment, because again, in First Chronicles, we find the same story, although there it says, Satan did this, put it upon David's heart to sin against his God. It is considered to be a sin against God. But here it says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against 
Israel, not against David. So there's something more than just what David is doing. God is using this event to punish the people of Israel as well as to demonstrate that David's sin is going to be something that needs to be dealt with and in a miraculous way, God does choose to bless the nation even though he's judging the nation. Again, his anger is aroused against Israel and we're not told why. It's a possibility that God was angry with the people of Israel that sided with Absalom. That's one explanation that's been given. There are other explanations. For instance, even in David's time, there were many in Israel who were falling away, chasing after idols and the gods of the Gentile nations around them, the Baals and the Molechs, and, and God was angry with Israel for their rebellion against him and their adulterous situation that they were doing spiritually against him because he was their husband and they were his wife. And if that's the case, God is judging them early on in this near end of David's reign as a prelude to what will eventually take place when he takes them out of the land altogether during the Babylonian captivity. But here, again, David's going to be used by God. And David makes a decision because Satan put it on his heart to do this and God allowed Satan to do that which he is about to do through David. Very much like in the book of Job. Yes, it's Satan who destroyed Job's property. It's Satan who arranged to have all of their children killed. All of their animals lost in fire and their property destroyed. And then Job himself covered from head to toe with boils. The only thing that was left of Job's possessions was his wife. If you want to call her a possession, I shouldn't say that. She's not a possession, but that's all that Job had was his wife. Everything else had been taken away from him. Satan did all that. But we also know from the book of Job that God allowed it. So there is a time when we realize in certain events that although Satan is the instigator, Satan is the source of of that which comes upon anyone who is a believer, it can happen to us all. If that does happen, yes, it, if it is Satan that is the cause of that, is because God allowed him to do that which is being done. God does not tempt anyone. He will not do evil, but he allows evil to be done to bring glory to his holy name. And again, we'll find that that's exactly what is being accomplished here. Verse 2 says, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. Now why was this a sin? Well, it wasn't because they weren't allowed to take a census. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, we find that a census was allowed uh, from certain periods of time and for certain reasons. And in the case of those censuses that were to be taken, normally it was done by the Levitical priesthood, and there was a cost per person of the census that was taken so that the money received would be to help finance the Levitical priesthood. And the 
system of offering uh, of all of the sacrifices and management of the tabernacle and temple eventually. But here, David is asking Joab to number the people. And apparently it's a military numbering. They only want to find out who's eligible to go to war. Now, there's nothing in and of itself that's sinful in that act, except for the fact that perhaps David was seeking to have this done for the wrong reason. Now, you remember, may remember in your reading of the book of Psalms, you do read the book of Psalms, do you not? Well, in verse 16 of Psalm 33, we find these words. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Also in Psalm 20, verse 7, David again writes, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What David had said in the book of Psalms is that it is not right for man to trust in man for victory against the enemies. He trusts in God, and he is the one who brings victory. We saw in Psalm 18 last week, which was recorded for us in chapter 22 of Second Samuel, verbatim, that his trust was indeed in the Lord. So why is it he is now trusting in the counting of all of these people? Why would the various numbers of people that would be eligible for war make a difference to David if he trusted in God? Well, that's really, I believe, the sin of David. He turned from his trust in God to his dependence on the might of his army. And he wants to number the people, find out how many men of war they can possibly muster. Well, verse 3 and Joab here is acting righteously. Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. So all of the captains of David's army were saying, Look, this isn't right. This is wrong, David, for us to do this. Why? Why? Why are you trying to do this? But David wouldn't listen. It says in verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jezreel. And then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim, Hadshi. And they came to Dan, Jaan, around to Sidon. So they're doing a circuitous route counterclockwise, moving into the territory of modern-day Jordan, the, the land of Gad and, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they went northwest from there up to Dan and over down, all the way as far as in Lebanon, Tyre, and then came down the coastline down to Beersheba. That's where they would come to the southernmost point. It says, they came in verse 6 to Gilead, into the land of Tatim Hadji, and then all around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out south to 
Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had come and gone all through the land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Almost ten months' time has been wasted in numbering the men of Israel and Judah who are eligible for war. Anyone over twenty years old, anyone under fifty-five years of age. They counted the men, and they bring the news back to David, and it tells us here in verse 9, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people of the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now again, a discrepancy appears between this record and that which is in First Chronicles. First Chronicles says that of Israel... They were 470,000 men. Here, it says there were 500,000. Or rather, let me read this again, just momentarily. The sum of the number of people were in Israel, 800,000 valiant men. It was 1 million men or 1.3 million men, according to First Chronicles. So there's quite a difference between that and this number. But the difference probably is in the wording, because here it tells us that he numbered in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. In other words, there were 800,000 men who were experienced warriors, the rest of the 1.3 million men that are described in First Chronicles would have been men eligible age, but not prepared for war. Possibly, that would be an explanation of the difference. In the second instance, where here it says 500,000 men of Judah and 470,000, according to First Chronicles, is probably explained by the fact that when Joab gave the number to David, Apparently, Joab excluded the number of men from Benjamin. Benjamin is always listed with David as part of Judah. And if that's the case, that could attribute the difference between the 470,000 in one account and the 500,000 here. So there's no discrepancy. It just requires a little bit of thinking and giving thought to perhaps an explanation that seems to be valid, that does make some degree of sense. Well, verse 10 continues and says, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. That's a good thing. David's heart condemned him. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in which that which I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Not just foolishly, very foolishly. David realizes that he has sinned against the Lord and he's now asking the Lord to forgive. He's saying, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So as far as he was concerned, he had done what was wrong and he knew it and he owned it and he confessed it. Those are always necessary things in the heart of a believer. You recognize your sin, you own your sin, you confess your sin. And God is able 
always and faithful to forgive. But here, take note in verse 10 again, it says, David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. Have you ever felt condemned about your sin? Well, there are definitely things that we have done, perhaps we know now that we shouldn't have, and we feel condemned about them. I want to share with you the idea that is given to us in the New Testament with regard to condemnation. It comes from Romans chapter 8, and it says simply this, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Whenever we feel condemnation, it's very likely that that condemnation is coming from our own sense of guilt and enhanced by Satan or one of his own. Satan condemns. God does not. Now, there's a difference between, between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is a good thing. They both hurt. You feel saddened by your, your, your sin and you've done what is wrong and you recognize that and you feel guilt. But don't let that guilt be taken advantage of by the enemy of your soul into a sense of condemnation. Rely on the Holy Spirit instead to convict you of that sin and to turn you back to God. And that's the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation will turn us away from God. Conviction turns us to God. When we sin, we know that it is wrong, and we know that we have forgiveness if we ask for forgiveness. And that conviction that the Spirit of God has put in our hearts is a good thing. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt any less than condemnation, but the results are far better if you respond to conviction of the Spirit as opposed to condemnation of the devil. David felt condemned. And I'm not really sure if it was totally from his own sense of guilt or whether Satan was pouring it on, saying perhaps in his mind, putting thoughts in his mind like, Oh, you really blew it this time, David. You thought the sin of Bathsheba was something. You thought that killing Uriah was something, but this is far worse. David, do you know what you have done? You have offended your God far beyond what you should have allowed yourself to participate in. And now look at the results. Oh, David must have felt very guilty. He's felt condemned, but he goes immediately to the Lord and asks for forgiveness. And that's exactly what all of us should remember and do in our own lives as well. Even though what we have done is very foolish, there is still forgiveness from God. Verse 11 says, Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet God, or Gad rather, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So God here is giving David an opportunity to select one of three possible ways that God is going to punish David in his taking this particular action that he did. And it says in verse 13, So God, Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? 
or shall there be three days' plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Well, those are three interesting options. And by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel was also given those same three options if they sinned against their God. So God is saying here, do you want famine to come to the land? Do you want your enemies to attack you? Or do you want pestilence? You choose, David. And David said to Gad, verse 14, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. In other words, David's saying, let God choose which is best for me in this case, but he would prefer the hand of God rather than the hand of men, because he knows his God is also merciful, and he's trusting in the mercy of God to help him through what is ever going to take place next. It's a good thing. So the Lord sent a plague, verse 15 says, upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. Now remember, God, according to verse 1, was angry against Israel. So this loss of 70,000 lives of the men in Israel is perhaps God's judgment against the nation as well as against David. He never does this sort of thing without a cause. And I believe the cause was they had sinned as much as David had sinned before the Lord. David had confessed his sin. And as king of Israel, in his confession, it actually included that same desire for God's mercy on behalf of his people. And God heard that. But there was judgment that came. 70,000 men of the people died. Verse 16 says, And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Now remember the Jebusites were the people who occupied the territory which is now the city of Jerusalem and its borders. And he was not an Israelite, he was a Canaanite. But he was one of David's men. He was faithful to David as David ruled over Israel in Jerusalem. But this man owned a piece of property and it is there that these events are about to unfold. And this particular portion of scripture is a remarkable place for us to end our study tonight and end the book of uh, Second Samuel because this property is special to the Lord. And I believe that all of this happened that is recorded here in chapter 24 because of what we are about to read. Verse 17 says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray you, be against me and against my father's house. So David is interceding now on behalf of the people of Israel. And then, verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, 
erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. So the man, the Jebusite, is offering David, Take anything you want. It's free. Take the land as a place where you can offer it. It's yours. Take the oxen. Take the wood of the yokes of the oxen for the burnt wood for the uh, burnt offering. Take it all. I want you to know, David, that I consider you to be king of Israel and I am willing to let everything that I have be yours. That's quite an offer. Take note of what David says in verse 24. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now, there's more to this story that's not given here. Later on, we find in 2 Kings that the son of David is going to build a temple. And it tells us that that temple was built on Mount Moriah. And it tells us the specific place on Mount Moriah that that temple would be built. And it happens to be the threshing floor of Arana. The very place where David offered up the sacrifice to God to stop the terrible troubles that were coming upon the nation of Israel was that place where the temple would be built. Take note of the fact that David bought that ground, paid 50 shekels for it. There's a bill of sale recorded for us right here in Second Samuel chapter 24. And there is nobody that could ever dispute that this particular plot of land does not belong to the people of Israel. It does. Today, they are all of them trying to say that it belongs to the Palestinians. It's their land. It is not their land. The mosque is there, but the temple was there. And I believe the temple will indeed be there again, on that very plot of ground where the original temple was. Where exactly is that? Well, that's just a matter of speculation, and we're not going to get into that. But I do know this, that God chose that particular threshing floor where the temple would ultimately be built, and it is the place where God chose to represent himself 
A plague had come upon Israel. Blood had been shed. But God stopped that plague by the shedding of His own Son's blood on that very place. If you go back in history, even all the way to Abraham, it was also on Mount Moriah where Abraham offered up Isaac. Those are types or pictures of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation foundation of the world for all men. Right on that very place. So that place that was once owned by a Jebusite, now bought by David, where an offering has been made, a sacrifice offered up unto the Lord to stay that which was taking place, the pestilence that was coming against the people of God. Oh, what a picture it is of the salvation that his own dear son, Jesus, would offer up himself on the very same place. That's why this is so important. What a way to end this book, to realize what God has done through David's sin is make a way for his people all ages to come to recognize that God was in control and his plan, his perfect will, was being absolutely played out exactly as he intended it. If David hadn't done what he had done, he wouldn't have gone to Arauna and paid that 50 shekels of gold for that property. And if that hadn't happened, then what difference did it make where Jesus was crucified? What difference would it make what Solomon might have done to build the temple? It wouldn't have mattered, but now it does. It all fits, it all comes together. It all is so perfectly accomplished under God's hand, controlling all of the events and using everything that we do, both good and bad, to bring glory to His name. That's so wonderful. That's so beautiful. That's so God. I pray that we all will have come to an appreciation of seeing the warts as well as the good deeds of our friend David. And one of these days we will see David face to face. Perhaps you'll have questions about various things that you might have heard or read about with regard to his exploits against the Philistines, with regard to his running from Saul, with regard to his taking the throne in Hebron and then finally bringing the whole nation together under one kingdom as he ruled for almost 33 years or a little over 33 years in Jerusalem. Yes, there were issues. Yes, there were sins. Yes, there were problems. Yes, there were difficulties. Yes, there were trials. Yes, there were disappointments. Yes, there was disillusionment, even despair in David's life. But he never left his God and God used him mightily even to the very end. May it be so for all of us. My prayer is that we, all of us, would be like David's mighty men, full of the Spirit of God and willing to always serve our King. God bless you all, and good night.